I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. These are the words of Jesus to his closest followers the night before he would be uh, crucified and died. Do you know someone who loves like this? I mean, imagining what Jesus might mean when he says, just as I have loved you, do you know someone who loves like this? I happen to live with one of these people. Um, My wife, Amanda, she is someone who is frequently caught loving like this. And uh, part of it is because, and this is one of the things I admire most about her, part of it is because of the simplicity of her faith. And it's not that it's not deep, it's just simple. And here's, here are the basics. Um, God loves the world. We saw that in Jesus. Uh, I'm a part of the world. My call is to love the world too. And that's, uh, you know, it's deeper than that. It's different than that. But that's the simplicity of it. Here's what I admire most about her, though. She has the courage, the humility, and the heart to actually put it into action and actually make a difference uh, in the world. I get to hear about her stories all the time, and I like telling her stories because she's a better person than I am, and it's just easier to tell, right? Like, her stories are easier because she's, she's great. Um, she was telling me a story the other day of something that happened to her, it was a few years ago. She, she's a fifth grade teacher. She had this kid named Nicholas. And Nicholas, like so many of the kids in her class, just come from difficult places, difficult homes and whatnot, and they're like rich people. They're not like poor. It's not poverty. It's not that sort of situation. Um, But this kid, Nicholas, he came from a divorced home where, you know, mom and dad divorced, and it wasn't a good divorce. It was a really ugly one. Um, And the kid is just kind of suffering because of it. He's not, um, he's not a stupid kid. He's, he's, he's okay. You know, he's kind of average. Um, He's a good athlete. He's kind of a good looking kid. Like a lot of things going in his favor. But this kid, Nicholas, he's just crippled um, by anxiety. He's crippled by self-doubt. He's crippled by, like, I, I don't know if I could do this. He gets overwhelmed all too often. One day, Amanda noticed that this was going that way that day. He was having a particularly difficult day, and she pulled him aside and, you know, tried to connect with him, tried to see what was going on, and he wasn't really giving anything back, and she tried a few times throughout the day. And so she did her best. Um, she went home from work, and once she got home, she got a notification on her phone uh, from Google Classroom. I don't know if you know what Google Classroom is, but it's basically like an online class type thing where kids can do assignments, kid, kids can submit assignments, um, kids can like ask questions to the teacher, that sort of thing. And so she got a notification, and um, she looked at it, and it was from Nicholas, and he was just having a horrible time. Like she could tell by the tone, by the by the content of the message, things were going south for Nicholas. Um, he was having a rough time. It, 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 it almost seemed like he was having a crisis. Um, and so what do you do in that situation? Um, I think a lot of teachers, I know if I was in a situation, I'd be like, well, it's, it's 5 o'clock. I'm done with this. I'll, I'll deal with this tomorrow. Um, but that's not Amanda, because she's driven by this very simple faith that says, you know, love is the thing that matters here. Um, It's not a matter of, like, you know, she has boundary issues with work and whatnot. That's really not her. 
This was a time where she was okay kind of um, crossing the boundary to do what needed to be did because that's what love kind of called for. So this is what she did. Um, She reached out to mom. She called mom. You know, looking to talk to mom. Maybe she could talk to Nicholas. Maybe she could talk mom through the homework assignment so Nicholas would kind of like, you know, kind of get through it. Um, Called mom. Mom didn't answer. So she called dad. Dad answered. Um, Dad said, you know, I'm thankful that you're calling. Unfortunately, Nicholas isn't with me right now. He's with his mother. And so I don't really know what to do there. Um, I could, you're not going to want this. You're not going to do this, but I could give you Nicholas's cell phone number. And then you could, like, you could call. You're not going to want to do that because then he's going to have your cell phone number when you call him. But you could do that. And Amanda thought about it for a second and said, I'm going to call Nicholas. So she gets his, his phone number. She calls Nicholas. Um, Nicholas answers the phone. Quite to his surprise, it's his teacher on the phone. Um, and Nicholas is having a breakdown. He is having a crisis. He is, just, um, he is not in a good place. And she took about 20, 25 minutes of her, you know, Tuesday afternoon, whatever it was, when the kids are running around and, you know, there's dishes to be done and there's homework to fit. Like, she took 20 to 25 minutes of her time um, to talk him through the homework assignment, which he was freaking out about. And as we all know, it's not about the homework assignment. It's about what else is going on in life. And she talked him through that, um, and, and she got him through that. And that was just one little picture of the kind of lo- uh, faith that Amanda puts into love um, for her students. Uh, at the end of the year, she got a letter from both mom and from dad th- like thanking her for the work that they did in Nicholas, or that she did in Nicholas's life and how he's different now. Um, she got an email from Nicholas about a year later. He's in middle school now, and he sent her an email um, basically just saying, you know, Mrs. Agresti, like, I'm doing really well at middle school now. I love it. Like, I'm, like, I'm learning. I'm doing good. And it's, it's all because of what you did for me. And not in just that one moment, but it's because of what you did for me. Um, not because of how she taught him. Because a lot of teachers can teach, and she's a good teacher. But it's not because of how she taught him. It's because of how she loved him. The way that she gave herself towards that situation to love him like that um, and did that over and over again, it changes the course of that kid's life. It changes his situation. Me, if I'm in that situation, I'm like, it's 5 o'clock. I'm not doing this right now, right? Um, In situations like this, I'm thinking about what's the easiest way to get this done? What's the quickest way to get this done? What's the least painful thing I can do? What's the thing that's going to cost me the least, right? What's, what's the bare minimum I can do so that in the eyes of people who are paying attention to me, I'm still a good guy, right? Or maybe, what's the bare minimum I can do so that in the eyes of God, I can trick God into thinking that I'm a good guy, right? That's where my head is at sometimes. That's where my questions are at. Um, that's not where Amanda is at. She is, she is marching to the beat of a different drummer. She has different questions in her mind. Uh, She is driven by the only thing that actually counts, and that's faith working through love. And that's what we talked about last week. We kind of opened the series talking about how the only thing that counts is faith working through love. And this is something that Paul said, the Apostle Paul says this in his letter to the Galatians. Um, He's basically saying there, you could do all of the religious stuff that you want, all of the vertical stuff, all of the prayer, all of the Bible reading, all of the worship, all of the singing. You can believe all the beliefs. You can think all the things. You can have all those feelings. You could do all of that. 
But if it doesn't result in horizontal love for others, it just doesn't count. It doesn't amount to anything. And he says that in 1 Corinthians too. He says, I could have the faith to move mountains, but if it doesn't issue forth in love for other people, concrete real life love, it's worthless. I am nothing in that case. We heard um, in the prophets last week, Amos and Isaiah, there was a situation where God's people, they were doing the worship, they were doing the sacrifice, they were singing the song, but they were neglecting justice. They were mistreating their widows, they were mistreating the orphans. They weren't loving their neighbor. And you know what God said to that? I hate that. I hate what you're doing. I hate it. Jesus echoes these same ideas too. When he says, um, what's the greatest commandment? I'll give it to you. It's love God, love your neighbor. It's not one, it's two, but it's really one thing. Because you can't do the vertical without the horizontal. It just doesn't work. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't count. Love God, love your neighbor. That's what we talked about last week, that faith-powered love. This week, here's what I want to do. Um, I want to do two things with you. The first is I want to give you a helpful way to think about what that love actually looks like, what that love actually is. And then I want to give you a helpful question that you can take with you and ask so that you could put that sort of faith-powered love into action, okay? So the first thing, what does this love look like? And I actually opened with it. Um, if you were here for that opening, and I'll read it again. I mean, here it is. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. And Jesus kind of defines this love using the word love, and I know you can't do that, but that's what he does, because it's Jesus. He could do that. Just as I have loved you. And that's an awfully high bar to set. And it's not just here that Jesus sets that. This is a kind of pattern that we see throughout the New Testament. Um, he repeats basically the same thing just two chapters later. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. He says the same kind of thing in Luke, talking about mercy, which is really another form of love. Be merciful just as your Father, just as God is merciful. And Paul picks up this very same kind of pattern. Uh, in Ephesians, be kind to one another, which is like love, tenderhearted, which is the same word as love, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgave you. And then Paul's kind of like most important statement along this regard. It kind of says it all. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There is this pattern throughout the New Testament that we are to love just as Jesus loved, just as God has loved us. And for us, that's immediately intimidating because that's a high bar, right? I mean, I can't reach that bar ever. I can't achieve that bar. Um, it's a high bar that if we set that bar like that, we will jump for it and never be able to grab it and we will always fail. Um, the thing is, when Jesus says this, when Paul says this, he's not talking about a high bar to jump for and reach. He's talking about this is the quality of the love that you are supposed to have. This is what it looks like. This is the kind of love. This is the model of what this love uh, looks like. This is, this is the model of the love that counts. And just to put it simply, it is modeled after Jesus. So, when Jesus is talking here in John 13, um, 
just as I have loved you. There's really three layers of love that Jesus is talking to. There might be more, but there's three that I've identified. Um, The first layer. Jesus is talking to a room full of um, his closest followers, his 12 disciples. Maybe there was more people in the room. I'm not really sure. Um, He was talking to these 12 men for whom Jesus' love has personally changed their lives. Think about it. Matthew is sitting in that room. Matthew was a tax collector. In those days, tax collectors were just some of the most hated people. Tax collectors um, were Jewish people who basically sold out their people in order to serve the Roman overlords and give all the money, and they took money, and they were greedy. Um, When we meet Matthew in the Gospels, uh, Jesus, he is is sitting there by himself in that tax booth, isolated from his people, really working towards being consumed by money. And Jesus comes along and he sees Matthew and he says, hey, I'm going to change your life because I look at you and I love you and I want something different for you. I don't want you to be isolated from your community. I don't want your family to hate you for this any longer. I don't want you to end your life consumed by money. And so I'm going to call you out of that tax booth. I'm going to call you to follow after me. And he does that, and Matthew's life is changed because just as, I have lo- just as I have loved you, that's how Jesus loved Matthew, personally changed his life. Nathaniel is sitting in that room too. When we first met Nathaniel, I don't know if you remember this, um, Jesus is probably thinking, like, Nathaniel, how have I loved you? Let's talk about it. When we first met, you made fun of me because of where I live. You made fun of me because of where I'm from. You were prejudiced against people who are like me, who are from my area. And you know what I did for you, Nathaniel? I called you to follow me anyway. Because I don't want you to be stuck in that prejudice. And more importantly, I don't want you to miss out on life because of your stupid ideas, because of your stupid prejudice. So I'm going to call you anyway. So when Nathaniel is sitting there thinking, just as I have loved you, oh yeah, Jesus, he gave me a second chance when I said something really dumb. He gave me a second chance when I had the wrong ideas in my heart. He stuck with me, even though he probably shouldn't. Peter is also there. Jesus is probably looking at Peter, just as I have loved you. Peter, now, I know what you're going to do. You're going to deny me. You're going to say you never knew me, not once, but three times. You were going to run away. You were going to turn your back on me. You were going to abandon me. And I'm going to have to forgive you. And I'm going to have to put you back in place. I'm going to have to restore you. But that hasn't happened yet. But let's talk about how I've loved you. All along the way, you have put your foot in your mouth. You have made mistake after mistake after mistake. Um, Remember that time where I had to yell at you and call you Satan? and tell you to get behind me because your ideas were so wrong about me? Do you remember that? Do you remember what I did? I stuck with you. I kept you by my side because I love you, because I see what is in you and what I want to get out of you, what you are called to, so I stuck with you. It would have been smarter, maybe, for me to pick one of the other guys to put in charge or just to kick you out of the group altogether and put someone else in charge. But I love you, Peter, and so I'm calling you back to do that. How did Jesus love Peter? He stuck with him. He was there. This just as love, it is personal. It is personally good for the people who receive it. 
It brings life where there was no life. It brings um, better ideas where there are bad ideas. It brings freedom. It brings hope. It brings meaning. It brings purpose. I want you to think in your life. How has Jesus personally loved you? What has he freed you from? What has he given you that you didn't have before? What life do you have now? What hope, what meaning does your life have now? Listen, the first layer of this just as love is that it is personally good. It is personally life-giving for the people who are on the receiving end. It's not necessarily good for the giver. It's not necessarily easy, but it is good for that person. That's the first layer of this love. The second layer, um, it kind of comes from the, the big context here of John 13. This is the big picture of what's happening here. And John opens up um, his chapter by saying this. This is uh, 34 verses before this. He says, Now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The context of this, just as I have loved you, is what's to come the next day. It's the cross. Jesus um, knew what was coming, and he made a decision to love them to the end. And so he made a decision um, to be arrested unfairly, to be tried unjustly, to be condemned, to be convicted for no reason, to be spat upon, to be mocked, to be beaten, finally to be crucified, uh, and to be killed on that cross. And he made that decision um, because he loved them, because he knew that in giving everything of himself, those men, and us included, the world would gain everything. For Jesus, this just as love is something that costs everything. It costs, it is self-giving, it is self-sacrificial. This is the model that Jesus gives us um, again and again and again. Paul says it, he gave himself, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. That's what love is for Jesus. And I wonder, I wonder for you, does your love cost anything? We are uh, good at loving people who are easy to love. We are good at loving people who we get things back from them, right? It's easy to love someone who you want something from. Much more difficult to love where it just costs us to love, where the return is not so obvious or where there is no return. It costs Jesus his life. What might it cost you? It might cost you your way. It might cost you getting your way. It might cost you your preferences, putting aside your plans, your desires, your priorities. It might cost you, like it did for Jesus, your dignity, your pride, your power. It might cost you what you have, your time, your finances, your resources, your energy, your stuff. Jesus said some pretty wild things about what this kind of love costs. At one point, he said, you might need to sell everything you have and give it all away. That, that's what it costs. This aspect of this just, us, just as love, it requires us to give of ourselves. 
It requires us to sacrifice ourselves. It costs a lot. And then there's the third layer. Um, if that was the big context, he's going to die for us. The third layer is the immediate context. Do you know where this, where this passage, what this is associated with, with what this follows? It's the foot washing scene. Right before this, Jesus washed the feet of these men. Um, this is how John talks about it. He says, and during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going to God. Just think about that for a second. Knowing that the Father had given him all things. He had all the power in the world, all the authority, all the position, all the status, all the place in the world. He had it in his hands. And listen to what he does next. He got up from the table, took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. In, in that day, this is the way these kind of dinners worked. There was a host for the dinner, and the host was expected to supply a servant who would um, wash people's feet. In those days, also, feet were super dirty because you had, like, sandals on or, like, not even shoes or, like, whatever you had on, and you were walking around all day, and the streets were dusty and they were dirty. There was no, like, pavement back then. They didn't really have sewers back then, so you could imagine what you were stepping on, and there were animals everywhere pulling stuff and, you know, making messes everywhere. And so by the time, like, the end of the day came around, when it was time for supper, your feet were just filthy. And for a meal like this, you're expecting to go in and have your feet washed by a servant. They get there, and there is no servant, because Jesus is the host of the meal. And he's not going to pay for a servant. He didn't have any money. And no one there thought about it. And so they're, they're all sitting there at the table. They've all already sat down. A few hours earlier, they were arguing about who's the most important. Now they're sitting there uh, arguing internally about who's the least important. Who's the lowest person here? Because they're all kind of looking at each other. Maybe Bartholomew will do it. We don't even know who he is. Like... Maybe he'll do it. They're all arguing internally, who's the least important here? And Jesus, who had all things in his hands, gets up from that table. He walks over to the corner. He, he, he takes the towel that the servant wears. He wraps it around him. He pours water into a basin. He gets down on his hands and his knees. And he goes down the line and washes the feet of these men. On his hands and his knees, he is looking up at them, looking back into his eyes. He's looking at men like Peter, who he knows is going to betray him or turn his back on him just a few hours later. He looks into the eyes of a man named Judas, who moments later will trade Jesus in for a wad of sweaty money. And he washes their feet, taking their dirty disgusting feet into his own hands, um, taking their filth upon him, and he washes, he washes them clean. This is the immediate context for what Jesus, just as I have just loved you, so you should love one another. You know what this love looks like? It looks like service. It looks like being a servant. It looks like putting yourself under people who you shouldn't be under. That's hard for us to do. That's really hard for us to do. Think about who those kind of people are, right? Um, your friends. These are your equals. They're not above you or under you. Your call is to go under them and serve them. That's difficult. 
your children. These are people who you are above. And you still have to be mom and dad. You still have to set the rules. You still have to punish. But you do it from a perspective of being under, of serving them. Uh, with your spouse. This is someone who you're equal to, right? In this case, though, it is a race to see who can go under one another quicker, to serve one another quicker. Think about this in the context of your work, right? You have your coworkers, people who you're equal with. Um, in your head, you know you're better than they are, right? And you know that you're smarter and you could do better and like they're not as useful. You could, you're probably already doing their job, right? You're above them, maybe you're equal. When you're loving just as Jesus loves, you're putting yourself under them. Your boss, who you're definitely smarter than, because your boss is an idiot, right? Everyone's boss is. Um, uh, you could do his job better than you can. You have to, like, just as I have loved you, um, work for him as a, as a servant would, not like in slavery, but like as a servant would. Even the people who work for you, the people who are clearly under you on the org chart, just as I have loved you, come under them for service. Um, Jesus kind of wraps up what he's saying here. Listen to what he says. He says, after he had washed their feet and put on his robe, returned to the table, he said to them, do you know what I have done for you? What I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord because I am above you, and that's true. He doesn't say because I'm above you, but you're right. That's what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example that you should do as I have done, you should do as I have done to you. When you boil this just as love down, we see it is, it is personal and it is personally good for the people who are receiving the love, even if it's not so good for you. We see that it is self-sacrificing, it is self-giving. It costs you for the benefit of the other person. And the third thing we see is it is humbling. It is service. It is putting yourself under another um, for their good, for their purpose. And so when you go back out into the world this afternoon, when you go to work tomorrow, when you're in your home, um, think, think through the lens of these three things. Personal, self-sacrificing, um, serving. This is what this just as love looks like. The problem is, though, in the moment, it is really difficult to think about these three things. Um, when tensions are high, when you have to go and have a difficult conversation, um, when the emotions are running, it is really difficult to think about these three things. And so I want to make it even simpler for you. Um, I want to give you a question that you can take really into any situation, any relationship, anything you don't know what to do or any time you don't know how to do it. If you could just have this question on your mind, um, you're going to have a good chance of loving just as Jesus loves. Seeing your faith working through love. It's a question that I didn't make up, so I can't take credit for it. I am directly ripping this off from a pastor in Georgia named Andy Stanley. Um, copyright 2014, Andy Stanley, whatever. <laughs> Legally, we're good now. Um, here's how he was talking about it. He was talking to a group of people, just like you, um, and the issue that he was addressing was basically, um, how, much can I, how much can I do before it's sin? How far can I go before it's 
before it crosses the line to become sin. And like, we kind of know what this is about, right? Like, um, it, just a little lie, is that sin, really? like a little white lie, or just a lack of truth, is that, what's, what's the line before it's sin, right? Or, you know, you're in high school, you're with your girlfriend, things are getting a little out of hand, you should save that for marriage, but how much is too much to touch, right? How close can I get to sin before it's quite sin? Or for us, um, like, how much is too much to spend on ourselves before it's greed, before it's just self-serve, right? Get into that line. Um, basically, what the concern is is um, how much can I do before it's over the line, right? Or, like, how much can I get away with? Or kind of what's the minimum here I can do? Or really, what's the maximum I can do before God looks down upon what I'm doing? And what Andy Stanley was doing in this talk I was watching is he was saying, if, if this is how you're making decisions— if as a Jesus follower, if this is what you're thinking, if this is where you're going, you are in the wrong place. Your head is in the wrong place. Your heart is in the wrong place. It's not how much can I get away with or um, what's the easiest way to get this done or what's the bare minimum I can do to still be a good guy. Those aren't the right questions. This is the right question to be asking. It's what does love require of me? When I first heard that question, I was sitting in my chair, and I sat back and said, oh, no. There's no escaping this question. There's no room to wiggle. There's no place to go. There's no excuses to be made. There's no, well, I did good with my Bible reading this week. None of that. It's what does love require of me? This is the exact question that Jesus is just as I have loved you command. Um, this is what it calls for. What does love require? require of me. If you think about this in terms of um, the situation that you're dealing with, the relationship, the person you're trying to love and are having a hard time loving, um, I bet your eyes will open as soon as you start thinking about this. It works in every situation, right? You're a kid. You got in trouble. Um, do I tell my parents? Do I not? The options are tell the truth, flat out lie, or just say nothing, right? Saying nothing isn't really lying, it's not quite sinning, but it's not really, right? Uh, when you're asking, though, what does love require? Um, the reason we don't lie is because lying says to the other person, you're not worth the truth. Lying says to the other person, um, you're not worth the time it would take for me to explain the truth and then for us to deal with it. The reason we don't lie to people, um, it's not just because the Bible says it's wrong to lie to people, but because lying ruins relationships. It breaks trust. Any sort of love we're building, it gets destroyed. It's the same with withholding um, truth that needs to be told. And so for a kid to ask the question, what does love require? They're going to do, the right, do the right thing there. Sometimes for us, we have situations in life that are just difficult for us to deal with. Um, we have to have conversations that we don't want to have to have. We have to sit across the table from people at lunch or coffee and, and, and have really hard conversations. We have to end relationships that are difficult to end. We have to fire people sometimes. I am wants to ask, what's the easiest way for me to get this done? What's the most painless way to do this? How can I do this and do just enough to still look good but get through this as easily as possible? That's not love, though. 
if you go into those situations asking, what does love require of me? You are going, you are going to do, you are going to come out with um, a fundamentally different thing. You're going to have those conversations. You're going to have to sacrifice your comfort to do it. Um, you're not going to send a text. You're not going to send an email and just get the job done. You're going to sit down and do the hard work because that's what love requires. And we know this um, from our closest relationships, from our best friends, our kids, especially our, our spouses, right? Um, when someone hurts one another, there's kind of two ways to go about this. There's to apologize and say, hey, I said I'm sorry, right? I did the work. Or it's to apologize and then change your behavior to show them that you're sorry and that you are living differently now because of it. One of the things is what the bare minimum requires. The other thing is what love requires. And we all know the difference between the bare minimum in, in, in our marriage, in those relationships, and actually doing what love requires. I was thinking through uh, this part of the message yesterday, actually. And I was thinking, um, I don't want them to take my word from it because I'm up here talking. I don't want them to take my word for it because uh, it's not my word, it's Andy Stanley's word, and he's not part of the Bible quite yet. Um, so where is the place in Scripture where I could see this and say, oh yeah, gosh, that's where it is. I was thinking through this yesterday, and I, was, um, I hadn't done the daily readings yet. I hadn't read the Bible yet for the day, like that plan that we give you. Um, and so I went to the only quiet room in the house that I could find, let the reader understand. Um, and I'm sitting there, and I'm reading. I read the psalm, and it was, you know, it is what it is. Um, and, then I get, and then I get to the New Testament reading for the day. If you read it yesterday, you know what it is. It's the entire letter to Philemon. It's Paul's letter to Philemon. Um, if you don't know what Philemon is, it's 25 verses, short verses. I will take longer to talk about it now than you could just sit there and read it, all right? But here's the situation for Philemon. Um, Paul, at this point, is in prison. He's in jail because he's preached the gospel. He's converted too many people. They don't want him there. He's in prison, and he's in prison with a man named Onesimus. And Onesimus was a slave. He was Philemon's slave. Philemon, uh, slavery was everywhere back then. Everywhere, you couldn't avoid it. Um, Philemon was also the head of a church in the area. He had a church meet in his house. He was the head of the church in the area, and Paul knew who Philemon was. They had um, crossed paths. They were acquaintances. While Onesimus is in jail with Paul, um, they strike up quite a relationship where they love each other, and Paul describes it as like a father-son relationship, as like a mentor relationship. And while in prison, Onesimus becomes a Christian. Um, he puts his faith in Jesus, and he wants to follow Jesus. Um, and it's, it's fantastic. It's time for Onesimus, though, to get out of prison. And so what Paul does is he writes a letter to Philemon, his master. He folds it up, gives it to Onesimus, and says, uh, here, give this to Philemon. Give this to your master. The content of this letter is basically Paul's pleading with uh, Philemon to free Onesimus from slavery, to free him. It took us 1,800 years and a bloody civil war to get to the point that Paul was at 2,000 years ago. Um, it was to free him. The thing that's interesting about this, though, is listen to the way that Paul makes his appeal. He says, Though I am bold enough in Christ 
to command you to do your duty, to free Philemon. What he's saying is, don't you know who I am? I am the apostle of the Gentiles. Jesus met me personally. I am in charge. I could put your church out of business. I could make you free, free Onesimus on the basis of my command. But, he says, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. He says, Philemon, I want you to do what love requires of you. Philemon, were you free before Jesus met you and encountered you? What did Jesus free you from? From sin? From death? That's how Jesus loved you. Remember what Jesus said, as I have loved you, so you should love one another. Philemon, I want you to do what love requires of you in that situation. Paul continues, I wanted to keep him with me, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. Perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Doing the bare minimum, doing what needs to be done to get by, it keeps people in slavery. It keeps things down. It keeps relationships shallow and bad. Doing what love requires brings freedom to people. It brings life to people. It gives life to people. And so um, here's what I want you to do with this. Uh, there's two things I want you to do. The first thing, I want you to learn to put this question uh, at the top of your list. King of the hill in your decision-making process. There are other questions. What's the right thing to do? What's the easiest thing to do? What's the cheapest? What's the quickest? What's the most cost-effective? What's best for my family? What's best for my future? Um, what's best for blah, blah, blah? Those are all questions. Put them down a few pegs. This is the question. What does love require of me? Think about that in your situations. Here's the other thing I want you to do. Last week, we did these silly little scorecards. If you were here, you remember it last week. At the top of it, it just said, um, the only thing that counts is faith working through love. And I had you write on the left of it, on that column, uh, the name of someone who's close to you, who you're called to love, and someone who's not so close to you, who you're called to love. Here's what I want you to do this week and going forward. I want you to work on applying this question to those two people. Not, what should I do here? What would be the best thing? Strategically, hmm, no. What does love require of me in this situation that would be personally good for them, that might cost me something, that might put me in a position where I have to get down and serve someone in a different way? That is what love requires. Remember, we can do all of the worship, all of the singing, all of the prayer, all the Bible study, believe all the beliefs, have it all. And if it doesn't result in concrete love towards our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, the kids we go to school with, it doesn't count for anything. I believe that we have an opportunity here at Park Church to make a difference like this in the world around us. Imagine a world where the church, Park Church, the church, is known by this, is known for faith working through love, for loving just as Jesus. They're the people who are always doing what love 
requires. Andy Stanley is known for saying, um, imagine a world where people criticize us for what we believe, but are envious of how we treat one another. Imagine a world where people, um, people look in on us and think, gosh, they believe a lot of weird things. They follow a dead guy who's raised from the dead, and that's weird. And they believe weird things, and they think weird things, and, and we don't quite get it. We can't understand it. But gosh, look at how they treat one another. Look at how they treat people. I, I want to be a part of that. We, as Park Church, have a chance to make that sort of impact in the world around us, in Monmouth County. Um, to turn the tables for people who have written off God, written off faith, written off Christianity, um, written off Jesus. We have a chance to show them a different God, a different Jesus, a different faith. But the only way we are going to do that is if we learn to ask questions like this and go and do it. To go and love where we live. That's why for the next few months we are dedicating ourselves to doing this together. It's why we want you to get into a community group so that you have people to talk about it with, to see how it's going, to check in with, um, to learn from, to pray with, to grow from, to work on this stuff together. Because we could do all of the vertical. If the horizontal doesn't also work, it doesn't amount to anything. But if we learn to ask this question, to love as Jesus loves, to love where we live, do you know what will happen? I mean, to use Jesus' words, by this, everyone will know that you're my followers. If you love one another. If we love where we live, everyone will know who we are. It will be impossible for them not to want to also come along and join us and follow Jesus together. Uh, that is what you are invited to here at Park Church. That's what we want for you. That's what we want for this world because it is the world that God loves. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the way that you have loved us, for sending your son into this world um, to suffer, to die for us, to give himself, to personally change our lives, to make them different. It cost you everything and it gave us everything. And we thank you. Jesus, we ask you now that you would um, help us to clear, the, to clear the ground of our lives so that we can get back to the only thing that counts, which is, your, which is faith in you working through love. And so we pray that you would grow that faith in us, build it in us, empower us to go out and love. Lord, give us clarity around that. May this question... Um, resonate in our hearts and in our minds as we go out into this world to try to love the people who you've given us to love. Lord, make us um, matter at ourselves for not loving than we are for missing a Bible reading or missing a church one Sunday. Um, put us on fire, Lord, for this uh, place, for our families, for our, our neighborhoods, for our community for the places that we live. We ask you, Jesus, that you would come to us now, speak to us, um, and live amongst us. Set us free to go and love uh, just as you have loved us. We lift this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.